the decade after the disease AIDS was formally identified in 1981, over 100,000 deaths were reported in the USA. It continues to devastate the lives of those unable to access the miraculously effective treatments now available. So why don't we talk more about the generational impact of that loss? What happened to the legacies of those queer people and people of colour who fought to get treatment in a political landscape happy to let them die? And what does all that have to do with how gentrification has massively changed our cities in the years since? Sarah Shulman is a novelist and writer whose works have dealt with the AIDS crisis and the radical queer movement that set out to demand justice for those affected. She's the author of 19 fiction and non-fiction books, as well as multiple plays and films. Some of her most provocative titles include Conflict is Not Abuse, Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up, New York, 1987 to 1993, and The Gentrification of the Mind, Witness to a Lost Imagination. The latter book sets out the idea that the literal gentrification of urban centres dovetailed with the huge losses of the AIDS epidemic to erase the memories of what radical politics can really achieve. We talked about the history of gay radicalism through the crisis, what cities lose through gentrification, and what today's activists can learn from a movement of people who fought and won. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For those of us who might not be aware of this history, how would you summarize ACT UP as a movement, as a series of movements, and and how that dovetailed with a, a history of queer radicalism in the 90s and 80s? Okay, that's like a huge question, and I could take the rest of our time to answer it. Um, <laughs> so I think you have to go back to the formation of the autonomous gay movement, and you know what led to that. So you know it. The, the problem was that the left did not want homosexuals, and gay people were excluded and ejected from, for example, the Communist Party, um, the Black Civil Rights Movement famously sidelined Bayard Rustin when he was arrested for having gay sex. The feminist movement had a number of lesbian purges that have not yet been historicized. So for those reasons, there was an autonomous gay movement, not because anybody theorized it that way but because nobody else wanted us. Now, in 1981, science recognized the pattern that came to be known as AIDS, but we now know that AIDS is probably 100 years old. So it would be a mistake to say that AIDS started in 1981. It's just when it was recognized. And one of the reasons it took so long is because in the United States, we don't have a functional healthcare system. And so everything is screwed up and continues to be screwed up because of that. But the condition for queer people in 1981 is important to revisit because today, you know, white gay man, some people think of that as a privileged category, although in the United States that's rapidly changing now that we're going backwards on a lot of the previous gains. But in 1981, gay sex was illegal in the United States. It was called sodomy laws, and they were not overturned until 2003. And in New York City, there was no anti-discrimination bill. So you could be fired from a job or kicked out of an apartment for being gay. And you also could be denied public accommodation, which means you could be denied service in a restaurant or in a hotel. Familial homophobia was virulent. It was a cultural norm. And street violence by the police and by straight people was a kind of form of public entertainment known as gay bashing. And there was really no recourse 
So this is, we're talking about a profoundly oppressed group of people that had no rights and also had absolutely no accurate media representation. And that's kind of where I come in. Because in 1979, when I was 21, I dropped out of college and I started working as a journalist for the feminist and gay press. Now at that time, Every city in America had at least one feminist newspaper and at least one gay newspaper. And this was like this national phenomena that straight people were entirely unaware of. They never saw these papers, they never read them, but the community read them and was in incredible dialogue with this, with this representation. And our job as the journalists, we were all unpaid, was to go out and identify what our issues were and report them back to our own community. So by the time AIDS was recognized in the early 80s, I was already on the beat as a, as a journalist. And so I got in on it very early and started covering it in the early 80s. Now, for the first five years of the epidemic, 40,000 people died in the United States. And the government, the president was Ronald Reagan. He did absolutely nothing. And pharmaceutical companies did nothing. What they were looking for was a pill you could take that would make your AIDS go away because that would be the largest market share for their profit interest. So they were recycling failed cancer drugs that they own patents for. But the thing is, AIDS doesn't really work that way. So AIDS is like an umbrella term, like cancer. It's different in each person. And what it means is that your immune system is stopping to function. And so that manifests differently in each person, and people would develop these horrible, horrible symptoms that were called opportunistic infections. So very robust young people would become demented or blind or get this kind of skin cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma that would just eat away your face, or they could no longer process nutrition and go through wasting syndrome and or the nerves in their legs would swell and they couldn't walk. So an AIDS death is a terrible death. And to be a young person at that time was to watch your friends suffer so profoundly. So what people with AIDS needed from pharma were treatments for each of these opportunistic infections. But pharma wasn't interested in studying them because the market shares were so much smaller. So that's kind of where we were. And what the gay community did in the first six years was try to create some facsimile of social services. And this is where familial homophobia is very important because family networks that might help someone when they're sick were not there for us. So we had to provide that. So when you look in those first years, you see things like Gay Men's Health Crisis created a buddy program where people would volunteer and you'd be assigned to a person with AIDS and you would like hang out with them or help them do their laundry or something until they died. Or there was a group that would walk people's dogs so that they could keep their pets. Or there was a group called God's Love We Deliver that would bring meals to people. So that's what it was, just trying to take care of people. But in 1986, there was a Supreme Court decision called Bowers v. Hardwick that upheld the sodomy law. So in the middle of this mass death experience, the Supreme Court decided that gay sex should continue to be illegal. And this was so cruel and so crazy that the gay community really got politicized. And there were angry demonstrations in New York and in Washington without permits, and, and the tide shifted. And in March of 1987, ACT UP was founded. 
And this was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. It was a direct action group. Now, they had one um, line statement of unity, which I would like leftists today to pay attention to. One sentence, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. That was it. So it was direct action as opposed to social service provision. And what that allowed for was if you had an idea that was direct action to end the AIDS crisis, basically you could do it. I mean, it would be debated and people screamed at each other. You know, this was pre-gentrification New York culture and we're very confrontational. Um, but in the end, if you had an idea that you really committed to that fit that definition, basically you could do it. So the way the organization operated was in this kind of radical democracy structure where we, you did not have to have consensus. So if you wanted to do something and I thought it was terrible, I would yell at you and we would have a big fight. But in the end, I would not try to stop you from doing it. I just wouldn't do it. And I would get my five people to do my idea. So what that produced was this kind of simultaneity of action where so many different projects were going on at the same time, so many different campaigns, so many different uh, things were happening, and they all had different ways of doing it, different aesthetics. They were aimed at different social milieu. And this simultaneity is ultimately what really caused the paradigm shift. So that, I think, is something that's really important to pay attention to. Now, in the six years that I cover in my book, my book is called um, Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP, 1987 to 1993. In those six years, ACT UP accomplished enormous victories. I mean, it's one of the most effective social movements in American history. And considering uh, how much oppression gay people were under and people with AIDS were under, it's really interesting to look at how they did it. So let me just say a little bit about what ACT UP accomplished. ACT UP forced the government to change the way they approved drugs so that people who were very sick could get experimental drugs that had not gone through a regulatory process. ACT UP forced the government to change the official definition of AIDS. This was a four-year campaign so that women with AIDS could qualify for benefits and also for experimental drug trials. I, bizarrely and horribly, women were excluded from experimental drug trials because in the 1960s, there was a drug called thalidomide that was given to pregnant women, and many of them had children born without limbs. And they sued pharma and won millions of dollars. So pharma decided no more women in experimental drug trials. But if there's no treatments, trials are the only treatment, and women could not get in the trials. So this was a huge campaign that ACT UP won. And you could actually say that this may be our farthest reaching Victory, because today, any woman in the world with HIV who takes a drug knows it was tested on other women. ACT UP got needle exchange made legal in New York City, which transformed the epidemic in the city. ACT UP took on the Catholic Church, and this is before the priest sex scandal. So the Catholic Church was so powerful, the cardinal was more powerful than the mayor and was in office longer. And the Catholic Church was trying to stop condom distribution in the public schools. And in December of 1989, ACT UP disrupted mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And um, you have to understand in 1989 what it meant for homosexuals with AIDS to disrupt mass 
in St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was so bold that this story was covered on the front page of newspapers all over the world. Even in Turkey, it was on the front page. And, and we did win that. And, you know, it really changed the way the movement was seen. And many other things. But in the end, I think what ACT UP really accomplished was that we changed the way that queer people and people with AIDS were understood around the world and how we felt about ourselves. I remember growing up uh, in the very last years of Section 28, of course, uh, legislation in the UK that prohibited discussion of any uh, homosexuality, any queerness, promotion, as they called it, and very much um, was given the narrative that AIDS was linked to a kind of death drive inherent in a gay lifestyle, in a gay existence that was only held in check by this kind of technological fix that was decoupled, obviously, from the social context, which forced the production of this extraordinary technological advances involved in um, cures and preventions for um, people with HIV and AIDS. So I'm just wondering what it has been like to spectate that huge process of kind of social forgetting and replacement that you document in your work around uh, the gentrification of the mind, as you call it. Well, there's a lot of different elements to this, you know, because on one hand, I was in a movement that in a sense, succeeded. I mean, we did not win everything we wanted, but we did change the future. And millions of the people are alive today because of AIDS activism all over the world. So I have the knowledge that popular movements of profoundly oppressed people can succeed. And so that's like one of the greatest gifts in my life. And it's something that has motivated me all of my life. The, um, the erasure of this information is you know tragic because there's so much misunderstanding about how movements succeed and what activism really is. You know, um, I think today I think we're coming out of it, but I think recently we've been in a period where people think that activism means taking people down, that it means doing a hyper critique, and that is not the tr- that is it's the opposite. Activism is about opening doors and creating possibilities. Real leadership, and this is the lesson of ACT UP, is helping people be effective from where they're at, instead of trying to force everybody to be in one place. Because I think historically, when you look at the the history of the left, movements that have tried to force people into one analysis or one strategy have all failed. And I don't think there's an exception to that. And the reason is because people can only be where they're at. And that's like the most frustrating thing in life. You know, I had to go to therapy for 20 years to understand that that's true. But it is true. (laughs) And if you want to be a good organizer, you have to, you know, recognize that. So trying to force people to be who they're not does not work. And and attacking people and criticizing them because they don't line up 100% with what you think is does not help. So what we really need is we need a bottom line. Everyone needs to have a bottom line of what their their values are. Direct action to end the AIDS crisis, for example. But within that, after that, the most effective organizing is this big tent politics. We are constantly shifting your coalitions based on points of agreement. So for example, The Catholic Church is my enemy. I mean, what they have done to abortion rights in the United States, clearly. But there may be Catholic churches in my neighborhood who are doing things that I support. 
that have to do with the rights of homeless people or tenants. And so I would, of course, support them on their our points of agreement, even though I, don't, I reject their larger um, agenda. Same thing with Zionism. I'm a very strong anti-Zionist. I'm on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace, and I'm a friend of Palestine. But there are people who I disagree with on that issue who I may have agreement with on abortion rights, for example. If I'm going to go into every single thing demanding that every person think like me, I'm going to fail as an organizer. It's just not viable. And now that we're in a time globally where so many different kinds of communities are under attack, I mean, everyone is under attack. You know, it's this capitalism has failed everybody and the whole world is paying the price. And we have more refugees now than we've ever had in history. So to demand that people in every community have to be in agreement is a fool's game. And, you know, so that's, that's where we need to come to. And I think we're getting there. You know, I, I think that this, this last period is coming, is petering out at this point. Um, but that's one of the big lessons. I'm super curious as to your the division you make between activism and care work or service work, particularly because, of course, that was such a, an important part of the kinds of programs and the kinds of services that queer people performed for one another to, to help each other through this, this moment of mass death, because increasingly you see uh, queer theorists, I guess, collapse that distinction uh, in many ways. And I'm wondering um, what for you is important about maintaining uh, that distinction between activism and care work? Yeah, I, I don't agree with you that queer theorists have collapsed that, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I think it's characterological. I think that, you know, different kinds of people respond to crises in different ways. And we need everyone's response on all the different levels. And for some people, the thing that they want to do when there's an AIDS crisis is walk people's dogs so that people who are very sick can keep their pets. And if I'm very sick, I want my pet. And I think that that's a very humane thing that can really change somebody's quality of life. So go for it. I'm not against that. But there's a certain type of person who is better suited to direct action and, you know, um, Jim Hubbard and I created the ACT UP Oral History Project, and people can go to our website, which is actuporalhistory.org. And there we interviewed 188 surviving members of ACT UP over 18 years. And you can watch all the interviews for free. You can download the transcripts for free. And we have hundreds of hours of archival video footage that you can also watch for free. And we've had 14 million hits on this website. Um, and, you know, in the process of interviewing these people, I started to understand what they had in common because they were so effective and there are not that many of them. You know, um, at the largest meetings were three to 700 people. The biggest demonstration was 7,000. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people. But these were a kind of person who characterologically could not be a bystander. And if you're that type of person, then direct action is right for you. So it's not that I think one is better than the other. I think we need simultaneity. But the people who did ACT UP wanted to do direct action. And this is also a really good lesson for organizers. Your group does not have to make everybody happy. If you have a group that wants to do um, anti-eviction work and somebody comes in and says, what about clean water work? You can say, that's great. Go start your own group because we're doing anti-eviction work. Like, 
ACT UP was like, we're doing direct action. So if you don't want to do direct action, don't come to this group. And that's okay because you have to be effective. Being effective is the key. One of the, the biggest mistakes that the left makes is that tactics that did not work, they do them again. The left is constantly repeating tactics that have already proven to fail. So what we really need are, is an emphasis on being effective. And the reason that AIDS activism was so effective was that people were dying against the clock and suffering, and they had concrete needs, and they needed those things to be accomplished fast. And that's what dictated the organization. So it's interesting because one of the um, leaders of ACT UP, Maxine Wolf, would, because uh, you know, ACT UP was, never did any theory. There was no theory at all. It was all action. And she said, if you go action first, your theory will emerge because you have to make decisions about how to do your action. And those decisions will help you cohere your values. But if you go theory first, you get polarized and then everyone's disagreeing, but there's nothing at stake. So that's the mistake. So the point is to be as effective as possible and being focused helps you be effective. I would love to turn for a moment to your central uh, metaphor, central theory that you use in the gentrification of the mind uh, to describe the process of how um, the AIDS crisis and the literal gentrification of cities kind of dovetailed to effectively erase this powerful history of how new worlds are made, of how change is made. And I'm wondering why gentrification appealed to you as a metaphor here to explain this process. Right. Well, it's not actually a metaphor. It's actually actual. Because gentr gentrification is a replacement system where, you know, difference, what makes cities great, urbanity, is about the confrontation of difference. Because difference stimulates people. It tells people that the whole world is not like them. It gives them that information from the beginning. And it's dialogic. And that's why cities produce new ideas for the world, art ideas and also revolutionary ideas. I mean, gay liberation and black power and women's liberation did not come from the suburbs. It came from cities, right? But when you homogenize a city, you destroy that difference and it becomes repetitive instead of dialogic. So let's just go back to the history of gentrification. Uh, and I, I only know about New York City, so that's let's go with that. So, after World War II, we had something called the GI Bill. And so people who had fought in World War II got certain benefits. And one of the benefits was that they could get very low cost loans to buy homes in this brand new phenomena called the suburbs. Prior to the suburbs, there had been small towns, right? But the suburbs were this new thing. And so the government gave money to GIs to buy into the suburbs. So in this way, the government was giving money to realtors through the bodies of the GIs. And the suburbs were racist. So it was white, what we call ethnic whites, like Jews, Italians, Greeks, you know, um, who were attracted to the suburbs. And so we had what was called white flight, where ethnic whites left the urban environment and moved into these very racially stratified and class stratified controlled environments. Some of them were literally gated where the houses were the same 
and it was privatized nuclear family living. So whereas when you live in a city, you have all different kinds of combinations of people living together in the same building, right? Single people, queer people, friends, families, multi-generational families. The, the suburban structure was the nuclear family. And so it became privatized. And you know all the terrible things that go on in a family, right? The family is the place that people first experience violence, sexual abuse, um, shunning, all of those experiences. But when they're taking place in a private house, they're secret. When they take place in an apartment building, other people witness it and know about it. So it, it really, um, it, it enhanced the power of the patriarchy within the family structure. So anti-gay, um, this was after World War II. During World War II, women had gone into industrial labor and had learned skills and earned their own salaries. But when the men came back from the war, women were kicked out of those jobs. And men got those jobs back. And there was a lot of propaganda about housewives, that being a housewife was a good thing. That was a sign of um, affluence. That instead of having a laundromat where everyone in the neighborhood went to the laundromat and sat there and talked about their lives, every each house had to have their own washing machine. So, you know, it made everything more secret and private and also consumer-based. Anyway, while that was going on, the cities, the white flight cities, were the, the place that all these revolutionary ideas were being born, right? All these movements of the 60s and 70s are happening. And then you start, but this, the, the tax base was very weak. And so the cities did not have social services. So realtors wanted to develop the cities for their own personal profit. And they developed a propaganda that if richer people were invited back into the city, the tax base would expand. So we would have more money for public transportation, for schools and hospitals. But in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected and he cut taxes. Rich people used to pay taxes in the United States. Now they don't. So the New York City is now filled with rich people, but they don't pay taxes. So our public sector is a disaster and there's no social services. Anyway, in the process of development, and these, these private developers did this with tax money. So it was corporate welfare. You know, the state gave money to wealthy developers to develop housing for wealthy people, money that came from taxes from working people. And this new housing attracted the children of white flight. The people who were born in the suburbs had grown up with racial stratification, were used to homogeneity, were used to chain stores, to, to malls and all this kind of thing. And they moved back to the city with those values. And so they wanted more policing. They wanted more homogeneity. They wanted more familiarity. You see a shift, interestingly, in food, for example. Pre-gentrification, each neighborhood was discreet, had its own ethnic groups. And as you walked from neighborhood to neighborhood, you saw different kinds of businesses. You would get different kinds of food. Um, with homogeneity, you get fusion. So um, it's the, the, the tastes are less you know, um, exotic to people, more familiar. The quality of the ingredients is higher, so the prices are higher. And it's, it's taking it away from feeding people from ethnic groups that live in those neighborhoods to feeding this new white gentry that's moving in. And so there's a lot of replacement going on. There's cultural replacement. And you see the numbers of white people in the city growing and the numbers of African-Americans, for example, falling.
And the kind of white people that are moving in are not these ethnic whites. It's white Protestants. It's people who are coming to work or white people, white Americans who are coming to work in the financial business, who are coming to work in the money business and who are more financially connected to, to their families, to capital and who can pay these higher prices. And so accompanying this, you see a change in value systems. So for example, a building that might have had four families on a floor gets renovated, so all those four apartments become one loft. And now two people are living in that space. Now that is an antisocial negative thing to do, but it's viewed as a status acquisition. So you have this value system that thinks that that's a good thing when actually it's a terrible thing for community or a, a neighborhood that becomes dangerous for poor people that they can no longer pay the elevated rents. They no longer have businesses that serve their needs. That's called getting better, right? But because it's described from the gentrifier's point of view, not from the point of view of people who live there. So accompanying this whole gentrification is a gentrification of the mind. The way people think about the city becomes homogenized and distorted, and the kinds of ideas that the city is producing become homogenized. So the city gets dumbed down by white homogenization, and you don't see these ideas, we don't see revolutionary ideas coming out of New York City today, because it's too expensive. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what you mean by this concept of urbanity that's a sort of the the opposite if I understand you correctly of the way in which the suburbs serve as this kind of totalizing system which creates these economic and psychogeographic conditions for the this erasure of difference erasure of resistance promotion of whiteness compulsory heterosexuality all these things reign supreme in the suburbs so what is the urban in opposition to that well Oh, I can tell you the urban manifestation of that. You know, so if you look at previously black neighborhoods in New York City that have been seized by white people, like Crown Heights, Bed-Stuy, Bushwick, right? If you walk around those neighborhoods, you see a lot of repetition um, of clothing, of code, of consumption of certain kinds of foods. It's, it's, there's, but what's weird about this culture, which is very homogenizing, is that it, it codes itself as hip. It sees itself as cool, right? It sees itself as something to strive for when actually it's extremely boring and it's, it, it is consuming difference. So, you know, the kinds of professions, it's very fit, it fits into the apparatus. It produces a desire to be in professions that are simpatico with capital, that um, are not uh, productive for the collective. Um, and, and yet it sees itself as not that. So there's a real distortion in the American mind about what we're actually doing and who we really are. And of course, Trumpism is the extreme of that. That you have half the country who believes things that are not true, who thinks that they are being threatened with replace, white replacement, 
who thinks that people of color and immigrants who are doing all the labor of this country are out to destroy them and are going to replace them. And we also see, I mean, this replacement ideology, you can even see it in the anti-trans movement. It's the same rhetoric. They're taking over everything. It's this, it's this you know, colonial fear of, of the other, when actually places like England and America are dependent on immigration f- to keep the culture invigorated, um, you know, to do the work, to bring new ideas, to bring new music, to bring new food, to bring new values about how to leave, live together. Without immigration, England is like a tiny little island with bad food. You know, so so <laughs> seriously. So you find no opposition here, but yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, so so that's what it's a val. It's putting the value on homogenization when homogenization destroys the world. I'm curious as to the link that you make between um, urbanity and uh, cultures of protest, cultures of resistance, and and how cities can kind of serve as a repository of of social and memory and the practical act of building new worlds, making change? Well, one thing is, is space. So people who build community arts programs, political meetings, uh, places to feed the poor, um, places of empowerment, they need places to be together. And when, when real estate is seized, you can't have space. You can't have theaters that are run cheaply. You can't, you know. So what we have in New York City right now is incredible amount of empty storefront. Blocks and blocks and blocks of empty storefronts because the prices of, there's no commercial rent control. And the price of commercial space is so high that the landlords prefer to not rent because then they can take it off as a tax deduction. It's a loss. If we if we would find people for vacancy, which is what I'm in favor of, that landlords who own have vacant commercial space should have to pay a fine um, to force the the prices down, then we would all be able to inhabit commercial space. In New York City, with empty commercial space means empty streets. The whole street life, the whole thing of walking down the street and seeing difference and seeing what people feel they want to create, what they feel their neighborhoods need, how they want to express themselves, how they want to gather community, it prohibits that from happening. We also, because of COVID, have huge amount of empty luxury apartments, and we have empty office space and empty hotel space. So the, the city is uninhabitable, but then we have huge numbers of homeless people because everything is too expensive and no place for them to go. So homeless people are living on the subways. So our mayor, who's a former police officer, uh, he doesn't want homeless people on the subways. So he's a, he will give speeches like, there are rules, you can't sleep on the subway. And he's obsessed with this and he sends police officers to wake up people who are sleeping on the subway because they have no private space, because all the public space is seized and empty. So what you're getting is a concept of a city as an uninhabitable space deliberately by policy. And what it basically serves as, it's like a safe deposit box for the ruling class to put their wealth. So an international wealthy person can buy an apartment 
for $10 million. And that's where they store their cash. They don't live in that apartment. It's empty. And that's how the whole city is functioning. So when you look at maps of all the construction that's been approved for the future of New York, you can see that all the housing stock is seized. On top of it, they're building another city that is not going to be inhabited. And they're not building any um, public sector to go along with it. So there's no more transportation being built. There's no more hospitals being built. They're not building public schools. So they're only building private sector space, which is for investment. So they're even building buildings that have helicopter landing pads on top so that people don't even have to walk through the streets of New York. So that's where we are, that, that cities have been seized by global capital. And, you know, I think it's, it's obvious that the U.S. government is like the dusty rear office of the sub-basement of global capital at this point, right? And, you know, so, so that's where we are. I'm fascinated by the way in which you describe this intense policing of public space increasingly in cities because um, arguments to the effect that that's been very much bound up with how public space has been seen as this potentially kind of unruly space of moral indecency, of queerness writ large, and the way in which that as police has very much been in these um sometimes coded, sometimes not so coded terms about uh, enforcing public safety, public morality, even cracking down on uh, the spread of disease. But what it actually is, is targeting queer people, particularly queer people of colour, sex workers. And I'm wondering what, um, I guess, your your experience has, has been about how public space can be kind of both a refuge for queerness when the domestic sphere can be so rejecting and violent, but also somewhere where, you know, intense policing is experienced as well. I mean, I think the thing that they don't want is immigration. Yeah. You know, um, that's what it is. It's people of color and also Muslims, not in the United States, but in Europe. That's where the, the, the focus is. I was recently in fascist Sweden, if you can believe that Sweden is now being controlled by a fascist party. And there, you know, they elected this fascist party because, despite their history because they don't like Muslims and they don't like immigrants. And the same thing's happening in Italy. Um, you know, Brexit is a different weird phenomena because I don't know exactly who Brexit was designed to keep out. I think it's Eastern Europeans. So it was like an anti-white Catholic Eastern European thing. I mean, you know more about it than I do. It's 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 hard to totally understand it. Uh, I mean, it's it's a bamboozling phenomenon. I think there was a. It's very much fueled by a similar kind of huge strain of um, Islamophobia, which very much defines UK public and political space at the moment. So I think we're safe to draw that comparison between Italy, Sweden, and here very much so. Yeah. So in the US, I, I think it's it's really. Um, racism. Now, the new anti-queer thing that's happening in places like Florida and Texas, anti-trans and don't say gay laws and all of this, it's, it feels like that is uh, an appeal to evangelical Christians for their support. Um, and, but, and it's an extension of this crackdown on the other. Of course, white gay men, to some extent, have assimilated into the white power structure in America, but that could be changing if the Supreme Court takes away the gay marriage law, which could happen this year. So that's in flux. 
but you know, queer immigrants, but it's really about immigration and people of color. Actually, I'd love to dig a little bit more into that because you describe this um, sometimes very ambivalent relationship between um, white queer people who've been perhaps uprooted uh, from suburbs, perhaps kicked out of their own homes, moving into uh, multi-ethnic urban centers, uh, sometimes integrating and supporting and being part of those communities, but sometimes very much trying to uh, telegraph and perform loyalties to structures of whiteness, heteronormativity, white supremacy, the state, etc. Well, I mean, gentrification in the 80s and 90s was blamed on artists and gay people. Mm. And the idea was that the accusation was that artists and gay people have moved into low-income neighborhoods and taken them over. Now we know that actually gentrification was policy and that it was a system of using tax money to put it in the pocket of people like Donald Trump, of realtors, um, the Helmsleys and people like that. Uh, so it was not this, you know, amorphous social um, natural evolution. So the particularly the thing about gay men, you know, um, in certain neighborhoods, and this is really no, it's not operative anymore because there really aren't gay neighborhoods anymore because things have changed quite a bit. But at the time, you know, gay people couldn't live in their hometowns and they couldn't live in their home countries. And sometimes they couldn't live in their home neighborhoods. So they moved into neighborhoods where they could be openly gay. And sometimes those were, those people were racist who did that. And sometimes they weren't. But they're not the reason that um, neighborhoods gentrified. It's because of policy. Now, what I address in Gentrification of the Mind is what happened when large numbers of people died of AIDS in key neighborhoods. And that's not just gay people. Because in New York City, there were significant AIDS death rates in, in communities that were not necessarily gay communities. So what you see is, and I lay this out in my book, that the neighborhoods that had the highest death rates were the neighborhoods that gentrified the fastest. Because gentrification was already in play when AIDS came. And then you have neighborhoods where thousands of people died and apartments that they occupied went to market rate. So whether it's the Lower East Side, the West Village, whether it's Harlem, whether it's Chelsea, you see apartments going from $200 a month to $800 a month because the tenant died. And at, also at that time, there was no re relationship recognition. So if your partner died of AIDS, you couldn't inherit the lease, but that's a smaller percentage. But so there's just, a, you know, there was very common to walk down the street and see the entire contents of some gay man's life out on the street for garbage, you know, because he had died of AIDS. This was like a common phenomena in the East Village, for example. Um, even in my building, gay people died of AIDS or drug users died of AIDS or, you know, pe people with AIDS died in New York City at a high rate. So you, then you could see that those become the most gentrified neighborhoods, whereas ironically, a place like the Upper East Side which was considered high income, had very low AIDS death rate. And it, the gentrification there is less. So now it's actually cheaper to buy an apart to rent an apartment on the Upper East Side than it is on the Lower East Side. Because the gentrif gentrification is was so accelerated. 
So it's not a conspiracy. It's just a co sad coincidence of cataclysms that, that produce this. So like the far West village is not gay. It's where, you know, Julianne Moore lives there. It's, it's for very, very wealthy movie stars and hedge fund people and stuff like that. And some of them might be gay, but it's not people who move there to have a gay life that they couldn't have in Iowa, you know, the previous group. I'm so struck by the accounts in your book of just the magnitude of the loss. Um, I keep coming back to the example of a box of playbills that were thrown out on the street that um, one could surmise that a gay man had uh, lost his life to AIDS. And, and, and that kind of process of literally handing whole people's lives and the histories into the trash it leaves me wondering, I guess, where does where does that grief go? Where has that process of 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 mourning uh, gone in the sort of the the long shadow of of that plague? I don't know because a lot of those people are forgotten. You know, these were in, entire generations of people who came to New York to be gay, met each other, had sexual community. Many people died and they were forgotten. I mean, I, Jim Hubbard and I are often asked to look at archival footage to see if we can identify who people are. And there's a certain point when we can't. You know, we just don't know who any of these people were. Um, and they were never seen again. Like sometimes you'll be, I'll be watching some archival footage and someone's being interviewed. And I've never met that person. I've never heard of that person. I know that they're dead. Because of familial homophobia, people just disappeared. And there are people who remember them still, but those people are getting older also. So that, that world is, is gone. And I don't think the issue is grief. I think, you know, one of the things that went with that group was high risk. These were high risk people. They were sexually out there in the world. People used drugs. They created counterculture. They broke the rules. They, they did what they had to do to be themselves. They produced, um, aesthetics that influenced the world. And they were separate from mainstream banal American aesthetics. And that's one of the reasons that ACT UP was so successful, was that it had an art influence and an aesthetic influence that came from oppositional culture, that came from underground culture. Um, and, you know, now when gay people get assimilated or when corporations seize on things like rainbow flags and stuff like that, it's so banal that it kills this kind of creativity. So I don't know if a white gay male organization today could be as creative and politically and aesthetically revolutionary as ACT UP was, because people are not coming from the same kind of oppositional oppression position of having underground culture. You know, when, when the mainstream culture did not, when the mainstream corporate media did not report on queer life, the way you found out about how to be queer was you had to go out into the community and you would find out about it from gay newspapers or feminist newspapers or shows or bars or being in person and observing. Now, most people get their queer information from some kind of corporate entity and not from actual experience and interaction with each other. What was really interesting when we started historicizing ACT UP because don't forget, this is before the internet. This whole movement took place without email or internet. So we started interviewing people. And the first thing that Jim Hubbard and I realized was that 
we were just like the other people in ACT UP. We thought that what we did and what our friends did was ACT UP because nobody had access to all the information about what everyone was doing. Because the way you got information was you went into a room and someone told you something. If you weren't in that room, you didn't hear what that person told you. There was no way to know what other people were doing necessarily. I mean, a little bit, but not in detail. After 18 years of interviewing 188 people, we found out about entire campaigns that we didn't even know existed. We found out that ACTUP was involved in a Haitian underground railroad where HIV positive Haitians who were incarcerated in Guantanamo were helped to find housing in New York City. We found out about the extent of the organizing of incarcerated women with HIV at Bedford Hills Prison who started their own organizations and buddy systems inside the prison. And when people finished their term, they, a number of people came to ACT UP from Bedford Hills. We were able to document that. We showed how active and former drug users in ACT UP did a very high-risk strategy of illegally exchanging needles in defiance of the law in order to be arrested so that they could have a test case. So that, and they won, thank God, so then uh, needle exchange became legal in New York. So we found out about all these kinds of networks and campaigns that people didn't know about um, because we asked people. So in, you know, in the end, um, I think oppositional cultures require people to speak to each other, to ask each other, to have extended communication, to see each other's affect, to hang out together, and that requires space. And when, the, when space is seized, those kinds of transformative relationships are much more difficult to build collectively. And contrasted to that culture of oppositional politics, you document um, what you identify as uh, the gentrification of politics. So I'm wondering what you see as, as the appeal of a turn towards things like um, gay marriage as a frontier for queer struggle, as the kind of um, wish to be included within the sort of structures that queer people were trying to perhaps tear down a generation or two before? Well, I think a lot of things have changed since I wrote the book. So let's go to maybe where it is today, because the book, first of all, it was very hard for me to get that book published. So it took almost 10 years to get that book published. And it was published, I think, almost 10 years ago. So some of it's a bit out of date, but where we are now, I think is really interesting because remember we started this conversation by saying that there was an autonomous gay movement because the left wouldn't, didn't want us. Well, now it's a completely different situation. All the radical movements today, whether it's immigration rights, anti-police violence, um, Palestine solidarity, whatever we're looking at, all of these movements have openly queer and trans people who are involved in the movements and who are involved in leadership of these movements. And that's a huge change. So you could say that radical queer politics has moved into the range of progressive politics, and that's where it belongs. There still is this rarefied gay rights sector and in the U.S., they're highly funded. I have almost no contact with them. I don't even know who the people are who run those organizations. But right now, things are so aggressive in America that those groups are going to become necessary. 
because actually the only federal right that queer people have in the U.S. is marriage. There's no national anti-discrimination bill. So if the Supreme Court takes down gay marriage, that regardless of how you feel about marriage, that's an enormous step backwards for queer rights. And those rarefied gay rights sectors, that's going to be their fight. So, you know, that's a very scary thing. And we'll see We'll see where it goes. I'm so taken with the uh, quote that you use from Rita Mae Brown, an army of lovers cannot fail. I want to kind of have that tattooed across my forehead in mirror writing. Um, and I just would love to hear, I guess, a little bit of what you make of the current terrain of queer radicalism in, uh, in New York. Well, you know, we have global fascism coming to power all over the world. Um, and our election in the U.S., 50% of people voted for fascists and liars. That's pretty fucking scary. Terrifying. Yeah. Um, even though the Democrats are spinning it like a victory, it's a terrible defeat that so many people are have defected to that position. You know, our side, I think, is getting more creative and Gen Z really came out in this election and made the whole difference. And that's exciting. And people, they're quite angry and they are activist oriented. We're seeing like uh, student organizing at the University of California at a level that we've never seen before. There's just a lot of exciting things happening there. Whether they're going to be able to turn this tide, I don't know. Sometimes there's a zeitgeist and you can't, you can't defeat the zeitgeist. And there are pendulums of history, and you, the goal is to live through it so that you can come out the other end. But there's always, everywhere I've been in the world, I have met amazing people who are committed to being effective, who are really creative and really imaginative, and who are willing to be self-critical enough to build effective movements. And, you know, I that's what keeps me going. I'm very optimistic um, so, you know, ultimately, it may not be tomorrow, but ultimately there will be another wave of creation and imagination. You document one of the most sort of dangerous mistruths about how we think about um, AIDS and HIV as thinking of it in, as something in the past, right? The AIDS epidemic is something purely of the 80s and 90s. So I was wondering if you could comment on the state of AIDS activism and how um, that is sort of treated in um, uh, civic life today. Well, I think I have a, a little bit of a different view. I mean, right now, if you're if you become infected with HIV today, if you have access to healthcare, there are medications that you can take. You'd have to take them every day, uh, or that's changing too. Um, but you, you would have to take them for probably the rest of your life, but you would have a normal lifespan. So becoming HIV positive is not the worst thing that can happen to you if you have access to HIV, I mean, to, uh, access to health care. However, it is highly stigmatized. It's stigmatized beyond its danger because HIV will always be associated with gay male anal sex and needles. And so it's queered. And that's why we have this uh, rash of HIV criminalization laws around the world in places, in states in the United States, places like Taiwan, places like Canada, 
where people who are HIV positive are mandated by law to disclose their status to their sexual partners. Now, what's so absurd about those laws is that if you are HIV positive and you're on the standard of care, you're taking the medication that you should be taking, your viral load is so suppressed that it's biologically impossible for you to infect anybody. So why should you have to tell them that you're HIV positive? It doesn't make any sense. It's not a health issue. It's a social stigma issue and it's punitive. You know, so, so that's, that's the threat. If you have access to healthcare, stigma is the threat. But I think that our recent events, COVID, have shown us um, some of the lasting problems from HIV, which is global pharma. You know, um, with HIV, medications were developed at a very rapid pace because of the pressures of, of the coalition. But pharma's desire for profit controlled those medications and people who needed them internally to the US and also globally who did not have access to healthcare couldn't get them. And then with coronavirus, we see the same pattern. We develop vaccines and poor countries can't get them. So what we're finding out is that having national health care is not enough. We need international health care because viruses cross borders. We need one global health care system where every person in the world can get equal access to the standard of care. Otherwise, we cannot address pandemics. So, you know, we have this all has to be reconceptualized because as long as pharma profit is put first. These, these things go on forever. You know, PrEP, which is interestingly made by a company called Gilead, they use these biblical terms to describe themselves. If every person who was HIV positive had access to the standard of care, they would not be able to infect anybody. You wouldn't need PrEP. The huge market and the huge profit margin for Gilead is dependent on unequal healthcare access, because it, it's dependent on people being afraid of being infected with HIV. So you, it means that you still need a body of people who are HIV positive, who are infectious, who are not getting the standard of care. And, and that's what a global healthcare system would, would erase. Professor Shulman, thank you so much for your time. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.